Want to make smart trading decisions fast? Decision Tech from Fidelity can help. You'll get heads-up alerts on market events and insights that can inform your buy and sell decisions. Plus, you can trade fractional shares with zero commissions for online U.S. stocks and ETFs. Never miss an opportunity. That's Decision Tech from Fidelity. Get started at fidelity.com slash trading. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Forget what's already been telegraphed. Is it time for the markets to start preparing for a worst-case scenario from the Fed? We'll tell you what that could look like and the likely stock winners and losers. Plus, it's been a record year for deals. Will the momentum continue in 2022? And who should be in your portfolio to best profit from that? We'll lay it out. Plus, Apple's ascension, Harley's EV moves, and Peloton's big moment. It's all coming up in rapid fire. But we begin with today's markets. And Seema Modi here to do the honors, Seema. Hey, Kelly. Good afternoon, stocks. Uh, at the lows of the session, those fresh concerns around Omicron, comments from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson this morning. The Dow is currently down by as much as 1%. Uh, off. We're currently at 35,632. The companies that do well when con- COVID concerns are low, the airlines, industrials, Uh, Trading down right now, as well as some of the casino players, American Airlines down about 5%. Other reopening trades, the cruise lines, which tend to be the most reactive to COVID headlines, you'll see are down about 5% with today's losses. I would point out that Carnival, the biggest cruise operator, is off by as much as 40% from its 52-week high. Uh, Meme stocks, take a look. AMC, GameStop are getting wrapped in today's sell-off. And for the month, GameStop and AMC are down just about 30% so far in the month of December. Among the best performing stocks on the S&P 500 at this hour, well, I guess it kind of makes sense. It's the vaccine manufacturers. We have Moderna up about 6% or more, and Pfizer up nearly 5%. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much. Now, the big event this week is, of course, the Fed meeting. Not just because it's a Fed meeting, but because this time, they're possibly expected to announce a faster taper. It starts tomorrow. The big decision is due out on Wednesday. And the key question is whether they'll speed that up, hint at any more rate hikes. Markets are increasingly starting to price a more hawkish Fed in. Steve Leisman is here now with the full details of what we should expect. Steve? Yeah, Kelly, the market is expecting a faster taper and a faster rise to rates. The question is whether the Fed... In a preview of tomorrow's CNBC Fed survey, which is coming out shortly, uh, uh, it will come out tomorrow... We, we, we asked people if the Fed will have to slow down uh, the economy, and 48% said, yeah, for, said no, but 45% said, indeed, yes, they will, with 7% unsure. Uh, what we find is that a, uh, if you look at what the next screen here, folks, is that the, the uh, um, there it is, J.P. Morgan writing, while market pricing incorporates an early Fed start, it is not anticipating the cumulative adjustment that lies ahead. We forecast policy rates to rise 175 basis points by the end of 2023 and see the Fed forecast projecting a return to neutral stance in 2024. And then if you look at the uh, Fed probabilities here, what you'll find is that the market looks for a May, uh, sorry, May rate hike more or less, and then June for sure, second hike coming in September and a third one in December. This would put the funds rate about 88, 90 basis points at the end of next year. 
But the inflation adjuster, a real Fed funds rate, shows the Fed has a lot of work to do. Minus 6.8 real Fed funds rate, the lowest in history, meaning the Fed has never been more stimulative than it is right now on a real basis. Investors are going to watch the Fed's own new projections to be published Wednesday to see how aggressively they forecast the path of the funds rate and whether the median Fed official is more hawkish, Kelly, than the market. Steve, you know this institution well. Do you see them laying the groundwork for that many rate hikes and a faster taper or not? I do, Kelly. I think that uh, uh, there's been a big turn, a big change. Uh, it came before Fed Chair Powell uh, took to the, uh, uh, the podium or the, uh, in testimony at the, at the end of last month. Uh, and uh, it, it came with him as well. And so I think they're ready to make a turn. And it'll be very interesting to see how much of a turn, two or three rate hikes uh, next year, uh, and then how far beyond that, how far they're going to go with their, to their neutral rate. Will we see the dots, the projections that would give us a feel for how many rate hikes they themselves are expecting, or is this not one of those meetings? This is one of those meetings. They're going to be uh, uh, releasing those projections uh, on Wednesday, and they'll be a big part of what the market's uh, looking for in terms of what the Fed itself believes uh, will be the, the path of the funds rate. Yeah, maybe even could be the event then of that whole release and news conference. We'll see. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. We really appreciated our Steve Leesman. And very exciting news, everybody. Power Lunch is going to Washington, D.C. to cover this decision on Wednesday. Tyler will be live outside the Fed's headquarters with an all-star panel of guests. You definitely don't want to miss it. Now, my next guest says dividend stocks are the best way to position for 2022. But won't more rate hikes from the Fed take away some of their luster? Plus, if you look at the DIV dividend ETF, it's only up 19% this year versus a 25% return for the S&P 500. It gets a little closer if you add in that 5% yield, but it's still lagging the broader market. For more, let's welcome in Kevin Mann. He's president and CIO at Henyon & Walsh Asset Management. Kevin, what do you say about the dividend's performance? Well, we know going back to 1930 that dividends have accounted for 41% of the total return of the S&P 500 index. Dividends are critical. And just to follow up on Steve's earlier comments, we believe in all likelihood that the Fed will announce on Wednesday that they are going to pick up the pace of their tapering and perhaps purchase $25 billion less of bonds per month, as opposed to just $15 billion less of bonds per month, which means, Kelly, that tapering would like to be done by the end of the first quarter of next year, sure. as opposed to the end of the second quarter of next year. And then, with the updated dot plot, perhaps suggests that there will be two rate hikes of 25 basis points next year as opposed to one. So yes, we're in a rising rate environment looking ahead, but rates are gonna stay at historic lows for at least the next couple of years. So, that makes dividend paying equities more attractive. Yeah, I mean, I guess very simply put, the higher that rates are means the higher you're likely to find yield in some kind of bond-like instruments, and therefore the less pressing need there is for dividend paying stocks. So. I mean, the nice thing about dividend-paying stocks, you're supposed to kind of get some stock appreciation and a yield. Um, do you think they'll continue to outcompete other uh, alternatives? I do. And I think this growth-to-value rotation, which really hasn't taken place thus far in 2021, will start to pick up momentum in 2022, as investors will remain challenged to find pockets of attractive income-oriented opportunities. And then if you layer in, as you suggested, Kelly, the price potential of investing in stocks, along with the income potential of dividend-paying stocks, we believe that presents a pretty powerful investment combination. And obviously, there's different ways of investing in dividend-paying stocks. You could do an ETF yeah. like the one I mentioned. There's plenty of mutual funds with that. You also have some specific names 
here, and I don't yes. know which strategy, uh, probably your own, uh, my guess is the way you'd recommend that most people play this, but <laughs> absolutely, yeah, Cisco, <laughs> Cummins, and AbbVie, why did those three in particular jump out? Absolutely, and all three of those names were in the most recent series of our Morningstar Dividend Yield Select Trust. So there's a technology name, there's an industrial name there, and there's also a healthcare name. All three of those companies have yields, trailing 12-month yields, above 2.5%, all of them have dividend payout ratios below 60% and are trading at reasonable PE valuations. And if you consider AbbVie, a biotech name that actually is involved in immunology and oncology, they've had double-digit dividend growth over the last one, three, and five years. So strong names, large-cap value names that can provide you with an attractive level of dividend. So, uh, Kevin, let's talk about some of the outside probabilities here. If consensus is currently maybe a couple of rate hikes next year, what happens if we get a few months into this and we're talking about the need to do a lot more than that? Or if the spread of a variant means all of a sudden the Fed backs away? You know, what would you say to a client about what those different outcomes could mean for the performance of dividend stocks? Uh, absolutely. And I can't predict the, the future of uh, COVID-19. As it stands right now, we believe that Omicron, while it's more contagious, it seems as though the symptoms are less severe and the vaccine makers remain confident about being able to combat this variant. However, if in fact inflation does start to get hot again, we think inflationary pressures remain, albeit not at the same levels as we saw this year. We believe the economy continues to grow, albeit not at the same levels of this year. So that type of outlook provides the Fed an opportunity to start to remove accommodations, but still that should be a conducive environment for both economic growth and stock growth potential. So dividend paying equities, again, can provide you with income and growth potential, but look for strong companies with strong balance sheet and a yeah. history of dividend growth. Kelly. Not the ones who have high dividend yields for a reason, uh, which is for stock performance. Exactly. Kevin, thanks for your time today. Great to see you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank Kevin you. Kevin Mon with Henyon and Walsh. Still ahead, the 1.4% yield on the 10-year, not keeping financials from having their best year in nearly a decade. Plus, we just had the strongest November for deal-making since the global financial crisis. So should you hang on to your financial stocks or take some profits? Plus, it's the long-awaited, much-anticipated return of rapid fire, and the timing couldn't be more perfect thanks to the Peloton Mr. Big saga, plus some buzzy news out of Apple and Harley we'll talk about. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Coca-Cola leading the way today and Boeing the biggest laggard. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. 
today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. No one's really talking about it, but this has actually been a huge year for deals and mergers. We're on track for $5.4 trillion worth of deal announcements globally. It's a huge increase over the previous record high in 2007. And it's not so much the number of deals that's a record, it's their size. We'll have more on that in just a moment. But first, look at the, some of the stocks of the top deal advisors. Houlihan Loki is up 49% this year. Greenhill up 47%. Molis and Evercore both up more than 20%. And they are two of my next guest's favorites right now. For more, let's welcome in Jeff Hart. He's senior research analyst at Piper Sandler. Jeff, it's good to have you. And what's been driving this deal boom? Because there haven't been a lot of deals that really are top of mind. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, it, and that's actually healthy. I, I would agree with you. From a cyclical standpoint, we're seeing a lot of deals in that $1 to $10 billion range. So they're big deals, but they're not the huge mega deals that, that tend to carry a lot of the, the headlines historically. And, you know, the fourth quarter is looking really good after what has been a really good year. And I, I really think kind of the punchline is in cyclical economics, just because you're hitting new record levels, doesn't mean the cycle's over. I think 2022 is looking like a very good year as well for the M&A boutiques. How much upside could that be for Molis and Evercore? Well, you know, the catchy thing always becomes the cycle can turn quickly, so you never know how much better or worse necessarily it could get. But, I mean, if, if we just kind of hang in there with activity levels, I mean, you're talking for someone like Evercore, 25, 20, 25, 30% upside from here before I'd start looking and saying, okay, it, it, it's looking frothy relative to activity levels. And you said that, it, you know, because this is global, about half of this is North America, but Europe has been a big contributor. And if that piece of this continues, you'd like Lazard? Yeah, I mean, I think when you kind of look at where M&A activity's been, North America has really been where it's strongest. Things are getting a lot better in Europe, but Europe never really got back to before the financial crisis when it was like 35% of kind of global volumes. It's worked its way up from 20 to 25% now, but that, that's really, I think, the key area for global volumes to keep growing, and that plays right into Evercore's hands, or excuse me, right into Lazard's hands <laughs> when it comes to who's the most kind of internationally exposed. Well, it's an interesting point, though, about what's been going on with Europe, uh, sort of more broadly speaking in that environment for the last decade. You cover all the rest of, you know, a lot of the rest of the banks and financials as well. Why am I not seeing more about Goldman, Morgan and those kinds of advisory firms here? Well, I, I think you're, you're seeing them. I mean, they're certainly getting on their deals and they're still kind of leading the pack. It's just a, a relatively smaller business for them than necessarily for, say, an Evercore where it's all of their business. But I think when I look at the kind of just the cyclical trends in capital markets, and this goes beyond M&A to things like equity underwriting, even sales and trading, I think 2022 is going to be a much better year than people are expecting. So, I mean, I think you, you look at a company like Goldman Sachs, that's a stock to, to own here, too. It's been very strong lately, but I think it's kind of discounted counting in a meaningful decline in activity levels next year, which, which may not materialize. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but the fact that financials are having their best year in a decade when the 10-year is still at 1.4% is pretty notable. Would you say it's because the, of the steepness of the curve that they've done well, or is it time to just throw out the whole rates thing as an important component of their growth? 
Well, it's an important component. Now, less so for the investment banks like a Peer Goldman Sachs or an Evercore, more so for your traditional banks like a JP Morgan or a, a B of A. But I think the, the market is kind of pricing in that rates have to go up from here and they may go up sooner than, than we expect. But I really do think you know, the, the thing that's probably lacking from a traditional bank standpoint here is loan growth. We really need to see loan growth pick up. So I think the, the, the banks have done really well here and I think they're kind of in a bit of a holding pattern until we got to get some confirmation that that economic strength will kind of turn into loan growth and actually higher rates materializing. So we kind of, I think, had the first leg up and it's been a pretty aggressive leg, but there's probably another leg, uh, another leg to come. So if I recast it this way to say you would stick with the advisory banks until we see an increase in loan demand, and then you might say to people broaden out to the rest of the bank sector, does that sound about right? That sounds reasonable. I mean, definitely stick with the, the M&A boutiques and the investment banks. Uh, the only trouble, I think, with watching for loan growth is once it really starts showing up, you may be too late. So right. err on the side of being early and on the banks before it becomes obvious. All right. Quick last word, then. Is there anyone you might want to take a flyer on to be a little early right now that springs to mind? Um, specifically in Bankland, you're thinking? Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I like the big names. So not that they haven't particularly done well, but I, I still like a B of A, a JP Morgan, your big names. The scale matters more now than ever, and they have it. And when those loan growth really starts picking up, it's, that's going to give them some juice. All right, we'll leave it there. Jeff, thank you so much today. Thank you. Jeff Hart joining me from Piper Sandler. Speaking of financials, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman is on Closing Bell for an exclusive interview today around 3 p.m. Eastern. Definitely stay tuned for that. And still ahead here, this stock has been the biggest drag on the Dow since October and is expected to record its third straight negative quarter for the first time since 2009. Now Goldman is naming it one of their top picks for next year. We'll reveal it and have the analyst here to make his case. Plus, Toby Rice takes on Elizabeth Warren. The CEO of EQT is here live to make his case for why natural gas is the key to lowering U.S. emissions, and he's warning politicians not to screw it up. Stay with us. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're seeing a sell-off today with the Dow down 307 points. We're near session lows when it was down 361. The Nasdaq is the worst performer with a decline of more than 1%. And if you want some explanation, take a look at what's going out in the semi-space. The semiconductor, the SMH, hasn't posted back-to-back -back gains in nearly a month, and it's underperforming again today. Take a look here. That's the SMH down 102 uh, NVIDIA down 11% and AMD down 15%. This is December performance. It's actually tracking for their worst month in over two and a half years. This is definitely an area to keep an eye on. 
Cowan is still bullish on a handful of chip names it says investors can use to ride out the auto industry's EV transition. For those names, head over to CNBC.com pro. Meantime, China Internet names are also underperforming. That's not helping today. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF KWeb is now down 20% in a month and led lower today by Tencent Music, Billy Billy, Pinduo Duo, and Alibaba. You can see declines there in Tencent Music's case of almost 7%. The red, despite a slew of bullish initiations on Wall Street today. Take a look at Sweet Green. We're seeing, in Sweet Green's case, a 6.7% decline for ticker SG. Here we're seeing Goldman, among many others, come out with their price targets, their views on the stock. Goldman the most bullish with 48 bucks a share, 50% upside from Friday's close. But these shares have underperformed since last month's IPO, down more than 40% from their $52 opening price. We're below 30 today. At one point this month, we were below the IPO price of 28 and actually as low as 24. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Ty. Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden will head to Kentucky on Wednesday to survey damage from this weekend's deadly tornadoes. He made the announcement after receiving an update on relief efforts from his top advisors. Biden also saying he will soon approve emergency assistance for Illinois. OSHA has opened an investigation into the Amazon facility in Illinois that collapsed in one of those tornadoes. Six deaths now confirmed there. OSHA officers have been on site since Saturday. And on the news tonight, team coverage on the ground at that Amazon warehouse in Illinois. That's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern time. Vice President Harris laying out a strategy to build 500,000 charging stations for electric vehicles across the country. The trillion-dollar infrastructure law set aside billions for the plan and to make sure rural areas and disadvantaged communities also get those charging stations. Two cargo ships have collided off the coast of southern Sweden. One of the ships capsized, a crew member dead, and another missing in the freezing waters Swedish officials say they are investigating several suspected crimes, including gross negligence and maritime intoxication. Kelly, back to you. Wow. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. Coming up, Apple's march to $3 trillion, Harley's big bet on EVs, and Peloton fires back in a big way. It's all ahead in Rapid Fire next. Welcome back, everybody. It is time for the first rapid fire in at least six weeks or so. We may not be in person yet, but maybe 2022 will be the year for that. In the meantime, joining me for today's long-awaited edition are CNBC's very own Morgan Brennan, Danielle Shea, Director of Options at Simpler Trading, and Tim Seymour, Seymour Asset Management CIO and Fast Money Trader. Really thrilled to have you guys all here. All right, let's start with Apple today. Could have been saying, yay, it hit $3 trillion. It's a big day, but we're still <laughs> just shy. Apple, remember, was the first company to ever reach a trillion dollars. That was only in August of 2018. Look at this timeline. It doubled to $2 trillion just last year, and now we're talking about almost $3 trillion. It's been soaring literally in just the past month or so. Shares turned negative today after they peaked less than a dollar away of the $3 trillion market cap. Let me quite simply, Danielle, ask if you'd be a buyer of Apple here. Not right here. You know, I own Apple. I love Apple. I've been trading Apple on a very frequent basis. But, you know, this ticker has met all of my price targets. And at this point, because of the huge momentum move we've seen, we're much more likely to see it pull back in the near future. And at that point, it'll probably pull the Nasdaq back right along with it. And at that point, I'd be a buyer. Okay. It's funny, Morgan, because earlier this year we were sort of talking about Apple was a little bit less exciting in terms of the performance. But now it's like 
hey, you know, it's like got, it got jealous that we were talking about other people and, and is really showing its stuff. I know it's had such a strong year. It's up something like 35% for the year. I mean, depending on which analyst you're following on Wall Street, I mean, Gene Munster spoke to him from Loop this morning. He sees another 38%, something like that, upside to the stock. It's a money-making machine. It's also been seen as a safe haven play amid all the broader market volatility. And then on top of it, you have these future initiatives, which we'll see when they materialize, how they materialize, but everything from Apple Car in the coming years to potentially a play on metaverse, even as the company is doubling down on privacy, which also seems to be something that is appealing to consumers. But the 5G aspect, perhaps we're not talking about that enough, Kelly, as you do start to see broader consumer adoption of 5G technology. True. And we're not you know, talking about the car yet. We're not talking about the goggles, Tim, which could be a, good, a big story for next year, big catalyst there. It seems like the real debate around Apple is, do you want to own it because it's a $3 trillion company now with this, uh, these new products in the pipeline, or do you not want to own it because that number is almost absurd. Well, it, it seemed absurd in 2018 and, and, and then quickly in 2019. Mm. In other words, in a world where they, they say it's hardest to make your first million um, or get to your first trillion in Apple's case, you know, it's been pretty easy to get to the next level. Uh, it went to a trillion dollar market cap at a 16, 7, 15, 16 times in 2018. It's 30 times forward here. Um, is it a different company? Yeah. I mean, the services industry, it, services component of their business is certainly a big part of it. 5G refresh. So this iPhone SE, I think a lot of people, Morgan brought up you know, just what 5G means. And I think that is very important. I think you have a case here where um, the 7% weighting in the S&P that is Apple is a blessing and a curse. And yeah. it's a blessing and a curse. And it has been for investors on a day like today where it's a pretty ugly tape uh, below the surface. Apple is, is disguising a lot of that. At some point, Apple might actually be uh, the, you know, the the tail uh, or the dog. Uh, it's probably the dog today, uh, but it might be the tail at <laughs> some you, point. But you're a buyer here, Tim. And other, I mean, maybe not a buyer, but you, it sounds to me yeah. like you're saying, yeah, like this is look. It makes sense. I think the, the company, from a multiple perspective, relative to the S and P, not relative to itself over a five year, because we know what's happened here. Um, uh, the cash flow generation here. Uh, I think the the balance sheet and capital markets dynamics in terms of what they can do with buybacks alone. I, I think the just the installed base is part of why this business can turn, continues to be more valuable every day. All right. It's down less than 1% today. If it gets any more or less negative, uh, we're back towards that $3 trillion mark around 178. And we'll move along in the meantime and talk about Harley Davidson. They are spinning out their EV motorcycle division via a SPAC today. CEO talked to Morgan this morning. Here's what he said about the future of EV on Squawk on the Street. If you look at the overall adoption rate, we see that increasing dramatically over the next few years. Adoption for EV, uh, infrastructure is being built, auto is helping us, and the technology is getting there as well. So exciting product, uh, better infrastructure, and, and of course incentives will also help to fuel uh, the EV growth. And investors are loving it, Morgan. The shares are up nearly 7%. And it reminds me that while we're all talking about EV car makers, this is an obvious other category that people should seems be equally excited about. I mean, well, I certainly think the timing cannot be discounted here and what has been a gangbusters year uh, for the EV narrative. And of course, all these companies going public to begin with. It is something we talked about in this uh, interview from Squawk on the Street earlier today. Also very noteworthy. Harley Davidson is a company that is undergoing a multi-year turnaround strategy under Jochen Zeitz, the CEO and chairman of Harley. Uh, and, and so this is sort of seen as an opportunity to inject capital into Livewire, uh, the electric motorcycle brand, stand it up, um, perhaps more aggressively target 
a new demographic, a younger demographic and more urban demographic, expand into more markets overseas, including in Asia, be able to partner uh, with other companies, not just Harley Davidson on the manufacturing front as well, but then ultimately see some of that technology and that innovation feedback into Harley longer term, too, because he did say that Harley Davidson in the future, in the coming years, will ultimately be an electrification story more broadly as well. But of course, we have to see how all that plays out because you do yeah. have that aging baby boomer demographic, which of course is the reason you are seeing a turnaround strategy and something like this happen in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and motorcycles themselves are pretty fuel efficient, Danielle. So it wasn't like this was the number one need, but you know, the times are changing. Would you be a buyer <laughs> of hog? No, I would not. You know, it's trading directly into resistance today. Um, I think it's a short here. Honestly, wow. we are in the news. Yes, I mean, it's in the news because of EV, right? But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that this industry has been trading downwards for quite a while. And it's because the younger generations just are not interested in motorcycles. You've got millennials, you've got Gen Z They're, You know, we still don't know yet if Gen Z is going to be interested in motorcycles or not. Uh, but I'm betting on a hard no. Right now, you know, we have the internet. People that are this age, they've seen the terrible motorcycle accidents that have happened. I just don't think that it's something culturally that people are interested in. And when you look at the key levels, especially where we're trading today, for me, it's definitely a short. Interesting. Vehement. A vehement short from Danielle. Tim, a quick word. <laughs> Well, the, the great, it's not lost on me, the irony that a Harley's supposed to be loud and boisterous and aggressive. And I mean, well, I don't think of that with the EV, but maybe they're going to figure out some way to make this fuel efficient and loud and boisterous. I just think, you know, the, the 55 times EV to sales uh, is, promises a lot in the future to get these guys to break even. It probably will happen. Tesla's a good tale of that, but the valuation makes zero sense. Um, it's also interesting, by the way, this is all going on at a time when the SPAC index is making, you know, multi-month lows. So yep. all of these SPAC deals, this structure, uh, not vilifying SPACs, just pointing out, um, yeah, maybe good timing for EV, terrible timing for SPACs. Let's see how this goes. All right. Great point. Next one, I want both uh, Tim and Danielle, just give me a quick trade on it. The NASDAQ 100 is rebalancing next week. That means out with the old, in with the new. So out, right, let's start with who's coming in. Airbnb and Lucid are going in. So is Palo Alto, Fortinet, and Datadog. Going out, Fox Corp, TripAdvisor, and Insight. So Tim, I'll start with you. Are, do you trade these moves? Yeah, well, no, I don't think you trade them. They're, they're, well, they're well flagged, well priced in. I, I think Palo Alto is the one that I actually find the most interesting. It's a company that's had a very big run. Some of these companies have. Some of them have been the driver of the NASDAQ move. For Palo Alto, it's the positioning of this as a full platform around cybersecurity, so not just network security. But um, I think what they've done here is, is an extraordinary transition into from hardware to software to both. And I think the multiple, while challenging, of all the names we just mentioned, mm -hmm. this is the one that makes money. This is the one that's been off free cash flow. All right, Danielle, what about you? These are really volatile names, but I love them, especially in the options market. They give you a lot of movement one direction or another. And yes, you do have to strap in and be ready for the ride. But I think cybersecurity is huge and it's going to continue to be huge. So when you're looking at these names, Palo Alto, great pick, FTNT, I like Datadog. I also like Cloudflare. I think any one of them, honestly, I mean, you could sell put credit spreads on a regular basis going out one to two months buying those back when you get those big moves higher 
Uh, you're going to do 90 days out, uh, long calls, Delta 70s. Also, I like to just buy the stock in addition to picking up shares of the ETF. I'm yeah. buying Hack, the ETF, as well, just for something that's a little bit more quiet. But I love the space, love trading the area. Just get ready for the ride. I always go back, Danielle, and I watch your thing, and I, I pause it every three seconds, and I write to, okay, buy 70 call. You know, tell you what I say, what does she say? <laughs> but I know that people who know, they know, and you guys all know. All right, finally, before we go today, let's talk some Peloton. It's all the talk again this holiday season, this time thanks to its starring role in the new Sex in the City show where the Mr. Big character dies after a Peloton ride. Peloton, not taking this one lying down, they've quickly made their own ad starring friend of the show, Ryan Reynolds. We'll show the whole thing next hour. They're saying Big is still alive and Peloton reduces your chance for heart attacks. But Danielle, investors aren't that amused. The shares are now positive for the day, but they're still down 74% year to date. Well, you know, Ryan Reynolds, as sexy as he is, I don't think he's going to be able to save Peloton stock right here. I mean, this thing has so many bag holders at this point. Um, until everybody who's willing to bail bails and this thing can actually level out, we're just not going to be able to see it trade higher. Trade higher. It's been a fun one to trade, uh, but unfortunately, until this thing can find a low and really hold support, Ryan Reynolds is not going to be able to save it. Wow, so you don't think we're there yet. Morgan, I mean, I loved the chutzpah of Peloton's response, which also initially included, like, intricate <laughs> script commentary about his unhealthy lifestyle being a contributing factor. Oh, I know. It elicited <laughs> such a big response from Peloton on Friday. And then, of course, this commercial, which apparently was done in 48 hours. I'm mean, going to be curious to see what the marketing spend just to pull this together with a star-studded True. cast for this uh, spot is going to be, especially given the fact that Peloton has frozen hiring, has cut its forecast, has already said that it's going to be spending more uh, on marketing to begin with. So we'll see whether it not only drives brand awareness, but drives more sales, but at, at what price yeah. to make this commercial. And we'll talk more next hour, but this whole thing, let me just quickly promo this first. The CEO of Mountain, which is the ad agency that required Ryan Reynolds' maximum effort arm, is going to join us along with Peloton's global head of marketing to talk about all of this. So, Tim, a quick last word from you. Are you a buyer yet of Peloton? First of all, have you guys just ruined the ending for me? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little worried even, about this. So, so it happened in like and, the first and, five know, minutes of I the mean, first episode. <laughs> all right, it's like all a right, mini spoiler, right. so, not so a big look, spoiler. I, all right, <laughs> fair enough. Look, Ryan Reynolds, uh, yes, stud. Uh, what can I say? Um, I think this is a, a story where you know the question is: Is Peloton GoPro? I mean, it, it's. It, we've tried to sell this as more than a hardware story. I realize the subscription revenue makes it different, but um, we're down to April 2020 levels on the stock. And I don't think it's it's going to stop here. I keep shopping for a discount one on Facebook Marketplace. I'm not saying I'm cheering for it to go down, <laughs> but the prices are still pretty high. All right. And when we talk to Peloton mm -hmm. next hour, it will be their first public discussion of this with the CMO. So stay tuned for that. Morgan Brennan, Danielle Shea and Tim Seymour. Thank you all very much for Rapid Fire today. And coming up, this stock has had a rough year, down 15%, but Goldman just made it one of their top picks for 2022. We have the name and the reason why. Welcome back. Boeing is not exactly the first name you might think of as a top pick for 2022, but maybe that's the point. The stock is down 15% over the past year as it faces one bad headline after another. Just last week, American Airlines was forced to trim international flights next summer, not because of demand, but because of Boeing's delays in delivering some aircraft.
But Goldman Sachs is now naming the stock as one of its top picks for next year, with them expecting business jet demand to keep growing and commercial aircraft orders to tick up. Joining me now is Goldman Senior Equity Research Analyst Noah Papanak. Noah, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to be here. Are you talking major breakout upside or why does this one jump out to you as a top pick? I mean, I think there can be major breakout upside in Boeing in the near term. Um, you know, it's also, I think, a great long-term stock. Uh, there's a long-term secular growth in air travel. I think what you said in the introduction there is key. You know, it's a cyclical, it's controversial. You know, a lot of times when it, it feels like there's challenges can be the time to buy cyclicals in general and Boeing specifically. So it's complex. There's a lot going on, but I, I strongly believe Air travel will continue to recover. People want to fly. It adds value to their lives and their business. Um, and the you know the issues with the 787 and the Max, I think, uh, are quite solvable. And the airlines will continue to want the airplanes over time. You cover aerospace and defense. Did you have a top 2021 pick? I'm curious. If so, what was it? Yeah. So throughout 2021, we've been recommending Boeing. Um, you know, we we're actually lucky enough to have upgraded Boeing fairly early, early in the pandemic. Uh, New would, would be a, a choppy ride, as it has been. Um, but I still think Boeing has a, a, a good long-term position, a lot of long-term upside. There's also a lot of interesting names in Boeing supply chain, uh, many of which we've been recommending. Raytheon is one that we have on the conviction list here at Goldman, uh, an aftermarket rich business, which is really just a, a great business, high margins, high returns on capital. And then, you know, what's happening in the private jet market is really interesting. Uh, we've had Textron as a top pick and on the mm -hmm. conviction list. You know, the pandemic's just brought a lot of new people into the business jet market. Uh, really tight supply and demand there uh, at the moment. Yeah, I bring the kids down to Teterboro to watch the planes. It's crowded skies uh, these days. As I understand it, it's, it's record highs for private jet travel. Let me just ask you a broader question about Boeing. I'm sure you've talked with management a number of times. The perception to me is that there are, the company has had issues executing across a number of different aircraft and faced a number of different challenges. And is this a challenge that runs deep and needs a major fix? And is that fix underway? Or do you think it's just a Chipotle effect where one negative headline kind of leads to more negative headlines, but the fundamentals haven't changed? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's somewhere in between those two descriptions. Um, it's it's more, more complicated and got worse than just one headline for sure. But I don't think it's a situation where, you know, the company is completely broken or anything like that. Um, you know, there have been some design and manufacturing issues with airplanes. But, you know, Boeing has a really long history in the industry. It is still a duopoly. Look at how some of their largest customers have stood by them, whether it's, you know, United, Ryanair, Southwest, Alaska. They've all ordered more of the 737 MAX uh, recently. And, you know, so Boeing has the right engineers, the right people in place to design the world's best airplanes and manufacture them, manufacture them and deliver them. Um, they lost their way. Uh, you know, they definitely did uh, things the wrong way for a little while there. But, you know, there's a new team in place. And I think uh, I think it's solvable and they'll get themselves back on the right track. All right. Well, the shares are at 197 today and, and your price target is. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have Boeing at 310. Uh, we still think they do over $20 a share in free cash flow on a normalized recurring basis starting in 2023 and, and beyond. So the stock is over a 10%, you know, a double-digit free cash flow yield. 
Uh, you know, on average over time, Boeing gets a 6-7% free cash yield. When things are humming along and really good, uh, I can get a 5% free cash yield. So it's definitely at the lower end of the historical valuation range. Yeah. And sentiment's negative, but, you know, one day will be positive again. All right. Well, that's 50% upside if the way you see things plays out. Noah, thank you for joining us today. All right. Thanks so much. Noah Popanak with Goldman Sachs. Up next, one cybersecurity researcher telling CNBC about the scariest vulnerability he's seen in two decades. We'll tell you why he's worried and what the investment implications are. Welcome back. It's been episode after episode of high-profile hacks this year. As a result, cybersecurity shares are rallying. Fortinet has more than doubled. Zscaler and Palo Alto are both up more than 50%. But now a newly discovered security flaw that could be bigger so far than any hacks we've yet seen. Eamon Javers joins us now with those details. Eamon? Kelly, that's right. Cybersecurity researcher Dmitry Alperovich told me over the weekend that this is the scariest vulnerability he's seen in 20 years and maybe ever. That's because the software here is so ubiquitous. It's a popular Java open source library for logging data, and it's embedded in thousands of products. Alperovitch says it's used in everything from Apple's iCloud to the Mars rover. And there's no guarantee that software publishers will be able to patch the problem before hackers take advantage of it. The software is designed to take data from an app and store it elsewhere, but a feature added back in 2013 allowed users to send data that would be interpreted as a URL so the program could execute code. But that feature also, as a result, allows attackers to send malware. And since its discovery last week, it's already being exploited by bad guys like hacker crypto miners and malicious nation states. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency posted an alert about the flaw on Saturday, warning that the vulnerability poses a severe risk and urging cooperation between the government and the private sector on this. Now, the challenge here is that this software is embedded in so many products, it means just about every company will be impacted by this new flaw, which is just coming to light. And since there are so many vendors involved here, it's not clear at all when all of these patches will be made. And that means the bad guys will have an open door for a long time to come. Some experts think we'll be dealing with the fallout of this for months, if not years. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Eamon, thank you very much. Eamon Javers. Still ahead, natural gas prices soaring this year and shares of the largest producer in the U.S. climbed right along with them. We'll talk to the CEO of EQT right after this. Welcome back. The spike in natural gas prices this year certainly caught the attention of Senator Elizabeth Warren. She sent letters to 11 energy companies blaming rising prices in part on the company's, quote, corporate greed and profiteering. But the CEO of the nation's biggest natural gas producer, EQT, responded with his own missive, noting that while prices are up this year, the 2021 average is significantly below the 20-year average. EQT CEO Toby Rice joins me now to talk about this year's move and where prices may be headed next. Toby, if she had waited a couple of weeks, think you still would have gotten that letter? Of course. I think, um, you know, the industry has been under a lot of pressure um, recently due to major issues with as it relates to climate change. I think a lot, a lot of that is driving a lot of the scrutiny and scapegoating of our industry. But, you know, one thing that is that we called out very clearly is that, you know, prices have never been lower because of American shale. And, you know, the one thing that's driving them to, to attack this industry, namely uh, concerns about climate change, is the one thing that this industry can provide them. The biggest solution, the biggest green initiative on the planet 
is U.S. LNG, and it's not even close. And, and that was a big part of our letter, was reminding Senator Warren that the U.S. LNG industry is the biggest initi green initiative on the planet. Toby, that reference to the last few weeks is really about the price action, where we've dropped from, I believe, over $6 to about $3.80 per million BTUs. That's a huge reversal because everybody's talking about what a mild December it's going to be. Is this just a head fake? No, I think that, um, you know, this is certainly the, the price action that we saw uh, in the prior couple months. I think a lot of speculation was built into that. There's a lot of speculation on, on winter. Um, you know, we're, we're in the United States, we're currently seeing some weather estimates that are showing that it may not be as, as, as bad. But, you know, the, the, the weather hasn't shown up yet, but it's not counting it out. Usually around December is when we start getting a better indication. But one thing is clear is that weather has shown up and it has shown up in Europe. And uh, a, co a continent that does not have access to reliable, cheap, clean, affordable energy like we have here in the United States. And we've seen the impact on prices there. Gas prices in Europe are, are around $40 per MCF. Just to put some things in perspective, American consumers pay the lowest for energy costs around the world. Um, and we'll continue to keep them low as long as we have the ability to do the great work that we do here in this industry. So, Toby, what would your biggest concern be on the political front? You know, when she talks about I forget exactly the word she used, corporate greed and profiteering. What is the action that you think would be most detrimental to the U.S. natural gas industry? I, I think the rhetoric is really the most important part. You know, um, our politicians need to understand that U.S. LNG is the biggest green initiative on the planet. If you care about climate change, you should support our industry. If you care about energy security, you should support our energy, our, our industry. If you care about providing energy security to the world, you should support our industry. Uh, that, relic, that rhetoric really translates to, I think, a, a negative public opinion. Um, and ultimately, this will, will translate to, you know, policies that are not favorable and do not do not advocate and promote cheap, reliable energy, clean energy, which is what natural gas does. I think you've seen this play out in Europe where they've banned drilling in the North Shore. They've banned hydraulic fracturing by putting regulations in place um, and they've stopped investing in traditional energy sources. You know, these type of policies, this rhetoric that leads to these type of policies and actions puts continents in, in energy poverty, what we're seeing in Europe right now. Yeah. And it's something that is a cautionary tale for a lot of Americans to understand. And it's interesting because, as you say, I mean, you can look at the price action. It really tells you the story and the importance of you know supporting an industry versus not. But those who would say we still want to do away with nat gas, Toby, because it does, you know, it might be better, but it still has emissions. You know, pipelines themselves uh, raise all sorts of questions and problems about methane leakage or, you know, the drilling for it itself raises concerns about earthquakes. And let's just leapfrog the whole thing and go to solar and wind. Are you concerned that as we move more quickly in that direction, the natural gas industry is going to be left behind. Well, you know, that would be amazing if we lived in a world where we had that type of solution that could solve the energy poverty needs around the world and meet our, our climate ambitions. Unfortunately, that technology does not exist. The reality is the United States is the leader in lowering emissions around the world. We've done that by replacing coal with natural gas. That opportunity has been tremendous. We've lowered our emissions by over 970 million tons here in the United States. When you step back and you look around the world, the biggest source of emissions is continuing on the work that we've done replacing foreign coal. You know, when, when you think about yeah, if we want yeah. to tackle climate change, we've got to put our best players in the field. And that that solution is launching and unleashing American natural gas to meet the energy needs of the world and meet our climate ambitions. Well, again, people can go read your letter where you really take all the data and lay it out quite clearly. Toby, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Toby Rice of EQT. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Time's up. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.